You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Yonatan Grad. The Melvin J. and Geraldine L. Glimsher Assistant Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, March 18th. Dr. Grad, uh, are you going to be using your camera today? Oh, sure. Sorry, let me turn Okay, that's it's okay. Hi. Uh, do, you have any, <laughs> do you have any opening remarks today? No, I'm happy to just jump right in with questions. Fantastic. Okay. All right. Uh, first question. Yes, good morning. Um, I would like to know who is working on the question of whether the COVID vaccine prevents transmission and what do we know so far? Uh, I suspect a lot of people are working on that question. Um, and uh, I think it's being explored um, through a number of different avenues. I think um, some of the data coming out of Israel where we're seeing um, uh, a decline in cases um, it, where there's been such high levels of vaccination, I think is, is going to be one indication uh, of the impact of vaccines on transmission. I think we'll also be able to learn from what, um, as, as vaccination expands across the US, I think we'll also be able to learn um, uh, from data monitoring the levels of disease and its relationship to vaccination in those populations. So I think, I think a bunch of people are, are looking at it in that way. I think also um, following, uh, you know, to, to see in vaccinated populations um, what the level is uh, uh, if they do become uh, infected, um, then you know whether there is uh, a lower level of uh, virus. So you know if if um, you know vaccination protects against severe disease, but, uh, and symptomatic disease, but if people can still become asymptomatically infected, if we see that individuals have lower levels of virus, that might also suggest that they're shedding less, and so would, there would be an implication that they would be less transmissible, uh, and so it would have an impact on transmission as well. So I think we're seeing, um, and, and from the data in, in Israel, I think we're seeing suggestions of uh, a strong impact on transmission. Um, so. Uh, a lot of work that I think is going on and that we'll um, hear more about over the coming uh, weeks and, and months. Right. It, what approach do you think is going to be effective in answering that? Because it seems like you'd have to either follow people for a long period of time, which kind of was a downside maybe of Operation Warp Speed, that they weren't able to, that these are fairly shorter studies. Um, do you agree with that? And then, you know, what is sort of the best approach to studying this question? Yeah, I think I think that in in the vaccine trials, it would have been great if people were regularly tested by PCR, um, because that would have given us an opportunity to see what the impact of vaccination was, not just on symptomatic disease, but on asymptomatic disease. And then by comparing the PCR CT values, which is the cycle threshold, it's really a reflection of uh, the amount of virus detected, uh, we would have been able to see whether vaccinated and unvaccinated asymptomatic individuals have different levels of virus. And that could have been uh, also informative uh, in terms of, it would be suggestive in terms of transmission. So um, yes, I, I agree that that would have been great uh, for these vaccine trials, but um, uh, wasn't done. So in uh, the absence of that, there are other ways we can try to get at this information. And I think looking at what happens in populations, um, both in, in so, so trying to relate as you're vaccinating in a, in a population, um, the rates observed in unvaccinated individuals, that will be a, a suggestion of um, just um, how, how much both herd effect and also um, generally the impact uh, of these vaccines on transmission would be. So I, I think we're going to, uh, following epidemiologically, uh, uh, the um, amount of disease in these populations will be um, will be helpful. Um, where vaccinated people are still undergoing 
um, any kind of routine testing, so healthcare workers or others, uh, if we have those data, those will also be useful in um, monitoring for, um, uh, for the impact of, of vaccines. I think a, a, a hint will also come from um, looking at data, not so much about from, from vaccinated uh, or the impact of vaccine, but the impact of natural infection. Uh, I think we're starting to get those data. There have been a number of reports um, out of the UK um, looking at, and I think there was just one uh, out of Denmark looking at protection from reinfection um, having, if you have been infected, uh, and then starting to look at the levels, um, the CT values to get a sense of just how much virus is there um, when, uh, when reinfected. So we're getting a sense of the, kind of, um, it's a related question to how much does vaccine protect against transmission. In this case, it's how much does previous infection and the immunity that it generated protect against transmission. I think those are um, so similar kinds of data uh, for vaccinated individuals, I think will also be useful. And, we'll, and I think those will start to come out too. Do you think we'll have more answers by the summer? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, thank you. Yep. Uh, I usually don't do this, I'm gonna pop in with a quick question. Do you know anything about the uh, design of the studies for the for children that I believe Moderna just started a couple days ago? Are they looking at the type of um, PCR? Are they doing any sort of PCR tests with the kids that you know of? I don't know. I know Pfizer. Pfizer has had a study going, I think, from for twelve to sixteen year olds, uh, and um, I think they're also starting or have started a trial with kids. I think that will. I, I don't know the details of the Moderna trial. I assume both of them will also be looking at. We'll probably start with a, a question about dosing, right? So it's going to be a different. I, I would imagine, not being a pediatrician, uh, I'm not sure, but I would imagine they would be looking at what is the appropriate dose, kind of age-based dose of these vaccines first, uh, and then what is their, you know, to, in order to elicit an immune response uh, that is comparable with what's seen in adults, uh, and then um, look at vaccine efficacy. Whether they're doing this, um, will monitor by PCR in these populations as well, I don't know but it's, it seems like it would be an opportunity to try to address uh, the question raised, for sure. Great, uh, thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, um, thanks. thanks so much. I, I was just hoping you could tell me a little bit about our, uh, sort of how you're viewing what's happening epidemiologically right now in, in the US, particularly around um, the status of, of B117. And I know there's sort of geographic variability, but what, what you're seeing. Yeah, so, so what I'm worried about is uh, places opening up too quickly, uh, right? So, so we're starting to see that um, there is a resurgence in cases in a number of states. Um, we, had, we had seen uh, a, you know, this, this massive peak over the winter and then a decline. Uh, but that decline has plateaued. And uh, when looking at national data, that plateau actually reflects uh, variation across states that includes some that where, where there's an increase in cases. Uh, um, so um, I worry about uh, uh, B117 driving that to get to your, to your point, uh, at least to some regard. Um, B117 uh, being more transmissible, uh, clearly, having driven um, uh, a big peak um, in the UK and elsewhere uh, recently raises concern that as we um, uh, let up on the various uh, interventions that really helped to slow spread, um, we're going to give an opening for the virus to spread further. And with a more transmissible strain, uh, we um, really, again, risk um, uh, additional peaks, and it feels like um, uh, <laughs> it's we're so close as vaccine starts to get um, rolled out that um, you know the the this tension between um, kind of exhaustion from uh, the um, social distancing and other types of interventions, um, the arrival of vaccines. Uh, um, this, this tension between the desire to start opening up and the risk associated with B117 just is, is uh, placing, the, placing us in a precarious position. 
it would be great if people could just you know kind of wait a little bit longer until we get uh, higher levels of vaccine coverage uh, as um, again I think b117 poses a risk but um, uh, and that well I, I would say um, opening up poses a risk and b117 exacerbates that risk um if I, I just want to make sure I'm sort of thinking about the dynamic correctly so basically like if the reproductive number is above one, epidemics will grow. And, and there are all these different factors sort of in a, a tug of war around that, like um, seasonality and vaccines and natural immunity and whatever interventions are still in place are sort of pulling that down. But as the prevalence of B117 increases among, um, I guess, cases or transmission, like that's that's pulling the number up, right? Is that is that kind of an appropriate way to think about what's happening about whether or not uh, epidemics are going to grow or, or shrink. So, so the the numbers, so the the effective reproductive number um, is influenced by, uh, um, as as you were saying, a number of of those factors. So, um, I, I would say the intrinsic transmissibility. Um, so they are not for B one one seven is higher. It's you know estimates are it's about fifty percent more transmissible um, than the uh, previously circulating strains of SARS-CoV-2. Um, so what will pull up the reproductive number are increased contact among individuals uh, or increased contact that provides opportunity for transmission. Um, so as people stop wearing masks, uh, as people um, return to bars and restaurants and uh, other locations that we know are um, particularly risky for transmission, that will lead to an increased effective reproductive number. Um, uh, keeping in place distancing, so reducing uh, contact and reducing opportunities for transmission um, will keep our effective and masking and so on. That will reduce the effective reproductive number. Okay. That, but like, yeah, but like um, vaccine protection and like natural immunity, that yeah. also brings down the number, right? That, correct, correct. Okay, cool. Sorry, it was, there was, my list was not exhaustive, but no, yes. No, 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 okay, it's just making sure. Okay. Totally right. So as, as the uh, fraction of the population uh, with protection increases, we should also see the effective reproductive number decline. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yep, no problem. Uh, next question. Hello. Um, thanks very much. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Okay, perfect. I want to follow up. Um, when we talk about that, um, the number of people who are vaccinated or who have uh, natural immunity reduces that effective reproduction number. Um, I guess the question is, is the vaccinations actually reducing, are the vaccinations going into the right people that would help to reduce that reproductive number such that we're vaccinating people who may not have been the ones out going to bars or going to the beaches in Florida or, or you know, out in public um, based on how we define the criteria for who could be vaccinated now, like, I guess the question is, is, did we vaccinate the right people to reduce that reproductive number in a way that's going to stamp down the case number rate? Right. So, so this is, um, uh, this is a question, um, that about, about strategy, right? So do you want to, what, what is your goal? Is your goal to decrease the number, is your, is given a limited number of vaccines, um, you could either uh, um, vaccinate, um, as you're saying, to, to try to, you know, what are you trying to optimize? Are you trying to optimize the reduction in the number of deaths? If so, you can imagine there are two strategies. One is vaccinate those people at highest risk of dying to provide them with some kind of protection. Uh, and um, uh, that would be one strategy. A second strategy would be vaccinate those people who uh, are the biggest transmitters right, and get your case numbers down with the idea that that would provide indirect protection and thus um, reduce the number of deaths. Right, so um, uh, it seems like there are two strategies and you have, can have intuition in both ways. Um, and uh, as, as uh, my friend and collaborator, Dan Laramore from the University of Colorado likes to say, when you have uh, two conflicting intuitions, this is where mathematical models help. Um, and this was the subject of um, uh, a paper we've recently published in Science on, on optimizing vaccination strategies. So what, what we found basically to 
to put it into a one-liner was that in most in most um, uh, situations, when you think about uh, your um, reproductive number, when you think about the demographics and the contacts among individuals, and when you think about your vaccine rollout rate, these are all different things that we explored in this paper, uh, um, it makes sense if your goal is to reduce deaths to focus on vaccinating those at highest risk of dying um, if infected. Um, there are some contexts where um, you would uh, want to um, uh, vaccinate those who are at highest risk of transmitting, right, to try to get cases down, which I think is what, what you were asking there, but um, in order to, to reduce deaths. But under most circumstances, uh, um, when we looked at it, um, it seems like the, uh, on the whole, um, the best strategy when you're uh, vaccine supply is limited um, is to target those people who are at highest risk of dying to reduce the overall number of deaths. Uh, and I can put in a link to the paper. Um, moment. Too late, I already did it. Oh, great. <laughs> okay, thank you for answering that. So um, I wanna, again, follow a very good question here. There's a number of states with the seven day case average that's worse than a 14 day average. and. Um, when you look at all the states and territories, that's 23 places where the seven day is worse than the 14 day. Meaning it's going up. Meaning that it's going up, correct. Um, for our readers, I think we have a difficult time trying to describe what we're looking at. And are we leaving a plateau? Do, are, do you consider this you know, numerically a wobble? Are we seesawing? What's the correct way to characterize what the data is trying to tell us at this point? I, I think, well, it's hard, hard for me to, uh, to predict what will happen in the next seven days or the next 14 days. I, I worry if those, it may vary by place, if those numbers of cases or hospitalizations, deaths are going up uh, in places where we, we've seen uh, lifting of the, uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions, the masking, so removal of mask mandates, you know, removal of um, social distancing, opening up of uh, bars, restaurants, and so on, then I would be concerned that what we're seeing is, uh, uh, you know, a real increase in numbers uh, from increased transmission, and that the expectation would be that those would continue to go up because now the virus has an opportunity to spread among susceptible people. So uh, it has to do with um, kind of the overall context for, for uh, where we're seeing those numbers go up. And then the other, the other concern is, um, as, as uh, Drew had asked, uh, B117, where you know, given the same, uh, it being more transmissible um, than prior strains where there are opportunities for transmission, B117 will take advantage of them more than prior strains and we'll see, um, we'll see it drive cases up too. So I think um, concern about B117 is, is um, uh, it's a serious concern and um, one that I think um, further underscores the importance of uh, vaccinating as much of the population uh, as we can, as quickly as we can. Okay, and then I'm sorry, one last question if my, uh, my friends here on the line will allow me. Is it even relevant um, I think my editors here like to think about the U.S. in comparison to the European Union or Italy, um, you know, where we we track them by a week or a month. Does that still track, or is it an irrelevant comparison to make now, given that our daily new cases rate is already so high? I'm sorry. Which what, what comparison in terms of um, number of cases in uh, Italy or across the European Union um, compared to the U.S. I see, how are we doing compared to other places in the world in terms of cases or deaths or is that? Right, I think it's a, do we, is it still relevant to say that we follow them by a few weeks or a month? Is that comparison oh, oh, still? Oh, 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 I see, I see. Do, is, is the pattern observed in other places in the world reflective of patterns seen in the US? Yes, you're better at asking the question than I am, thank you. <laughs> no, 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 I was just, I was I was restating just to clarify for myself what, what, you, what you were asking. I, I think that the, the, um, we, we know just how hyperlocal this pandemic really is. I mean, it's, it's basically um, many local epidemics. We're seeing states that have different patterns of spread. So 
um, although we think of the US and we can aggregate across states and think of the US as, as one single um, entity, and for some purposes, it makes sense to do that, like the overall death rate and so on. Um, I, I think the fact that we're, we, we've seen such different uh, patterns in different states governed by the community decisions uh, on um, what types of interventions to put into place when and, and how vaccination is going. Uh, I, I don't know that it makes sense to, to compare the entire US to what's happening in other places. It makes much more sense to look across the US and view each of these regions as, as distinct. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks so much. This is a slightly off topic in a way, but um, you, you know, uh, Minnesota, uh, was the first to find P1 or in the U.S. to document it, and um, and that seems like P1 has been kind of a non-issue. And I I just wondered, um, is there what what's your explanation for for that? Why um, why does that variant not seem to have taken hold here? I don't know. <laughs> um, it's a it's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, it seems like, um, you know, the, 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 the initial concern based on what was seen in Manaus uh, made, was, was um, I, I haven't seen it replicated in, in other places. So, so I, 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 I don't know what to make of it. Um, I am worried about variants that have uh, this E484K mutation that seems to reduce the, um, uh, well, the partial vaccine escapes or natural immunity escapes. So basically it seems to reduce um, uh, the neutralization of antibodies generated from either natural infection or vaccination. So, uh, you know, I, th that seemed to me, uh, continues to seem quite a worry. Um, so I, I don't know what to make of the fact that some of the strains with that mutation um, haven't really been taking off everywhere um, as one might expect. It could be that the combination of, uh, you know, that, that mutation plus just the extent of disease in different populations, um, uh, there's sufficient immunity to prevent its spread uh, or the combination of immunity plus social distancing or masking is enough to prevent it from really taking off. I, I don't know. Uh, I think it's 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 a really interesting question and one that hopefully we'll learn more about um, uh, as genome sequencing expands. I think one of the problems in the U.S. Um, and other places has been we haven't had uh, as good genomic surveillance to really be able to tell us what the dynamics uh, truly are. So um, as as that ramps up, uh, we may be able to answer that question uh, a little bit more thoroughly. But it's, I, I agree, it's an interesting uh, and, and puzzling question. Thanks. Just one quick follow-up. Um, when I talk with the health lab folks here, um, one thing they remark on is that, that that finding came from a random sample. And I wondered, you as an outsider, like, does that also strike you as interesting? And does it, um, therefore, kind of point to the need for what you were just suggesting in terms of expanded sequencing. In other words, it seems like um, the more you do, the more you get surprised and you find things like this, but perhaps more importantly, other things that could emerge. Yes, I, I think that the, the uh, I, I'd be curious actually for the size of that random sample. I mean, I, I think this gets to uh, something that's been talked about now for um, a number of months and, and where I think the, the federal government and the CDC are really starting to invest. And this is, you know, what should a genomic surveillance program look like? One part of it should be random sampling um, so that you can get a sense of what's happening overall in a population. Another part of it should be directed sampling, particularly for people who have severe disease uh, that will allow you to look for whether there are trends of, um, or emergence of, of either known variants or new variants that are causing uh, either more cases from your random sampling or more severe disease by comparing um, those who 
you know, the strains that are causing severe disease with what you observe in a random sample. Um, those really seem to be the, the, the main things at least we'd want to look at right now. So uh, expanded sampling, um, both random and directed, uh, will allow us to, I think, answer some of the, the critical questions um, that we're all interested in, uh, both now and going forward. And, sorry, one last thing. On that point, the money and the, the relief bill last week for more sequencing, that's something, that's a good thing, I would guess, from your perspective. It's a critical thing, um, not just from my perspective, but I think for all of us. <laughs> Um, I mean, inf investing in that infrastructure uh, will be hugely important um, for, uh, um, for SARS-CoV-2. And I think it has great long-term consequences. I think this is um, an infrastructure for monitoring infectious diseases that will be valuable, uh, not, just, not just for the pandemic, but for tracking infectious diseases broadly, uh, even after we emerge from this. So I think it's an extremely important investment um, for both the short term and long term. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I'm just going to add in real quick that um, Massachusetts had its first P1 variant uh, case identified on the 16th. So we'll have our own little experiment going to see if it takes off here or not. Um, next question. Hi, Yonatan. Thank you for your time today. Uh, you kind of, you touched on this earlier, but here in Ohio, we've just gotten some data on the rate of genomic sequencing going on, and it's it's pretty low. It's really modest. So, for one, why is genomic sequencing? Why does it seem to be so scarce here? I mean, how much should states be doing, and is any state really meeting the threshold in a serious way of adequate visibility of these strains? I think it's an area that just hasn't received much investment historically. And I think that um, uh, is in contrast with uh, what we're seeing um, out of the UK where they have had a, a robust pathogen, broadly speaking pathogen, um, so microbial sequencing uh, uh, platform um, for, for years and has really integrated that into the public health response. So, uh, you know, it, it's something where we've just, we've just been behind. Uh, and um, uh, I don't know of the details of how uh, states are, are sequencing or how much sequencing is, is going on state by state, other than to say that it is uh, really, um, I think, starting to, to improve. The CDC put out um, uh, grants to support sequencing at um, state public health labs and in collaboration with academic labs um, uh, a little while ago. And I think that has really led to a ramp up in, um, in sequencing of SARS-CoV-2 genomes. Uh, and I think that will, you know, especially with this uh, new funding continue to, um, to increase. Uh, but I think, you know, we, what we also will need is not only the um, the brute force of, of, uh, of doing more sequencing, but then um, thoughtful approaches and strategies on how to, um, how to how to implement that sequencing and interpret it. So uh, as I was describing before, developing approaches that uh, sampling approaches um, that uh, will allow you to answer the questions you want to answer uh, and to give you good estimates uh, and robust estimates of uh, prevalence, changing prevalence, um, severity of disease, all, all of these things require uh, some forethought and planning, um, not just uh, sequencing whatever you can get your hands on. Convenient samples uh, have some value uh, and can be interpreted uh, to some extent, but really a deliberate sampling strategy um, uh, can get you to your answers faster. Um, so I'm hopeful that that will also be part of uh, the genome sequencing um, going forward. It's not just about the sequencing, it's about thinking about what you're sequencing and how to do it most efficiently uh, and to enable answering the questions you really want to answer. And to follow, I mean, do you have any sense of like what rate of total samples taken need to be sequenced to have that visibility you might be comfortable with? Like what 1% of all tests or 1% of all positive tests? Yeah, it depends on um, uh, how quickly you want to be able to find something. 
um, and uh, um, kind of what what your so so um, you know we looked at this um, for uh, you know just trying to think about this was in pre-pandemic times when we were thinking about antibiotic resistance and we were wondering about uh, how much sampling do you need to do to pick up a new antibiotic resistance determinant prior to it becoming some fraction of the population. Um, uh, and there's a, a similar kind of calculus that you can make here, um, you know, just what, um, what, uh, how prevalent um, uh, uh, will, um, uh, a newly detected variant B on the relative to how much sampling you're doing. Um, so let me um, just in terms of putting that in the chat too. Uh, hold on a second. Um, so there we go. I think I just sent that to Nicole, but here's it to everybody. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I, ideally, if you had the money uh, and resources, you'd sequence all isolates. Uh, um, you know, if if it were if it didn't cost anything, um, that's what you would do. But recognizing that there's limitation in sequencing capacity, uh, and um, you know that. And, and analytic capacity, there's going to be a lot of noise if you sequence everything. You know, I think a number of places are, are targeting uh, around 5% um, and, you know, to, to be able to you know, do 5% of samples. But again, this gets at this question of how do you want to divide that if, um, you know, part of, part of your question is to be able to identify those that are causing more severe disease. You might want to, you know, kind of to split those numbers to a random sample, which can give you a sense of what's spreading through a population and whether you have a particular variant that's increasing and what's causing severe disease, right? So looking at those, uh, not just individuals who may be asymptomatically infected or mildly infected, but really getting a sense of which ones um, are responsible for the people, for people showing up in, um, uh, in critical care units or dying, and then being able to compare those two populations so that you can understand whether um, what's causing severe disease is just a reflection of what's circulating or whether it's one particular strain. So I think that there is, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's going to, the, the amount of sequencing is going to depend on the resources available, um, of course, and then, um, you know, exactly what, uh, um, how many cases you can tolerate before you pick up something new. So um, that, there, there's no right answer. It's just a question of what you're going to be, kind of what you want to target. How many, how much, uh, how prevalent you will accept something being before you detect it. Thank you. Thank you. That's really helpful. Uh, next question. Hi. Thanks a lot. Um, we're a very local newspaper. Um, but I have a question that is a little more general. How important is it in terms of controlling the spread of variants that you don't find out that a positive case is actually caused by a variant until maybe a week, maybe even longer after the person has tested positive? Um. Are, are you, I'm not sure I understand the question. So, so you're asking how important is it for control of variants broadly uh, or in that specific case? The fact that it takes so long after someone tests, tests positive. Oh, to, to understand. That it's, a, that it's a variant. Because, you know, we have a kind of a, we don't have a, the greatest contact tracing in uh, anywhere that I know of in, in the United States. So, um, how important is it that it takes so long to actually identify a positive case as a matter of a variant? Yeah, I guess it's it's a question, you know, if we can speak about B117 as one example of, of this because it's um, more transmissible. And it's really, I think, you know, that there this gets to control uh, of spread broadly, right? So um, the same principles apply for variants and non-variants. It's for non-variants. It's just the same principles apply for SARS-CoV-2, uh, that what you want to try to do is, is 
implement uh, our non-pharmaceutical interventions, isolate the people who are infected, quarantine contacts. Uh, those, those things hold whether it's a variant or not uh, and um, should, be, should be used for, for all cases. You know, being able to identify that there is a, um, uh, in the population that you're seeing an increase in variants, um, that is useful in helping to understand um, which one and whether, whether the patterns of spread um, or in particular populations are being able to help guide interventions or you know, instruct whether we might need to uh, target vaccines to particular populations or otherwise try to slow spread through reinstituting or, or tightening the non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, so so it, it matters more on an epidemiological scale to, to influence uh, that level of decision-making. Um, but for individual cases, I think the same principles apply no matter uh, the strain of uh, SARS-CoV-2 causing an infection. So if you have a case of a trans, uh, like a B117 in a, in a community, um, does that, um, does that um, uh, suggest that you might want to do more uh, sequencing of tests in that community? I'm talking uh, about in Cambridge, we have, um, we have a certain number of B117s. We have two of the South African variant out of six in the whole state. Um, so, I'm just wondering whether that means that you're not only targeted by um, by severe disease, but you target it by location. I see. So um, yeah, I think you know the, the um, it depends on what kind of question you want to answer. So so if part of the um, question is to, to get a better sense of the local dynamics or the local prevalence, then, then for sure, um, you know, you can uh, target your sampling, either increase the random sampling in your population, or if there are particular communities that you think are uh, at high risk, um, uh, or, you know, if you, if you're trying to understand whether they're, um, you know, this is, gets to uh, what we call genomic epidemiology, and you want to understand, um, the, the specific spread of variants within a population. Sequencing can not only tell you about um, the, whether there's a specific variant, but can, can help uh, with, in the right circumstance, understand um, the, the pattern and nature of spread. So again, it gets to what, what do you want to do with that information? How is it going to help uh, improve your public health response? Um, is it you know, that you want to identify whether there is a specific event that led to a lot of spread, uh, whether there's um, a particular community that's at high risk from um, uh, spread, perhaps because of a reduction in uh, one of the non-pharmaceutical interventions, you know, the, the uh, social distancing or, you know, so on, um, so that you can know that re-implementing uh, or tightening some of those restrictions might be helpful. I mean, it, it gets to the, the question of wh what are you going to do with that information? Uh, and um, then uh, how, will you, uh, uh, how will you intervene? Thanks. Thanks you very much. You're welcome. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks. Sorry, just a quick follow-up question. Um, my sense has been that, like, as a, as a practical matter, sequencing I want to say never gets done in in a timeline that would sort of allow some if it was me the health department to call me and say hey you've got b117 you really need to stay home that's not really the way this happens anywhere i don't think is that is that right uh i think that is mostly right i think there are some well for, first of all anyone with a positive test should be staying home it's not that we say that you should particularly stay home with one of the variants, but but really anyone who's positive should be isolating. The fact that you have, you know, that someone might be infected with a, a variant uh, um, on the individual level uh, won't, shouldn't necessarily influence their 
actions, it's just being infected with SARS-CoV-2, you should be isolating, right? And your contacts should be quarantining. That is just general principles that hold regardless. Um, the utility of genome sequencing on the individual level, you know, there are some places in which that might happen um, if you really wanted to, to track transmission or understand uh, the nature of spread within uh, particular exposures. So to really help understand um, uh, whether you might, you know, within a particular location have an outbreak uh, um, or multiple independent introductions. I mean, it can, it can help understand the dynamics more locally and over a short time period, uh, but from an individual level, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't think it will influence um, the, or should influence at, at this point um, actions. All of the actions basically reflect uh, infection with SARS-CoV-2, no matter the lineage. Got it. Thanks so much. Yep. Uh, next question. Yes, just to follow up on the genetic sequencing. Um, are pharmaceutical companies engaged in this effort because they're the ones developing these booster shots, which are supposed to work against some of the emerging strains? So uh, you would think logically they'd have to identify them. So I was just wondering how that works. Uh, I don't know that they themselves are involved in um, involved directly in, in doing sequencing because there's so much. Uh, um, information coming from sequencing being done by other people, right? Other groups. I mean, the identification of B117, of P1, um, among others, uh, th that was that's done by um, genomic epidemiology, doing doing the sequencing and surveillance. So those those have been identified in the context of public health surveillance, uh, and then. Um, further characterized by monitoring trends in epidemiology, as well as the response of, uh, um, uh, or as well as characterizing the immune response to these variants. So um, I don't know that the, the vaccine companies themselves have been, I, I don't know that they've been involved in uh, um, sequencing themselves in part because it's that that's kind of covered by other by other groups, but they're certainly using that information. I mean, it gets back to as well, you know, the, the, the first SARS-CoV-2 sequence, uh, you know, that, that was generated um, uh, by, um, you know, combination of public health academic group. Um, and these companies like Moderna and Pfizer were able to start developing a vaccine based on that sequence um, very early on. In the same way, they're using information being generated by uh, surveillance and sequencing um, to help inform uh, the next generation of vaccines. So I, I, I don't know that there really is a, uh, um, whether they're investing directly or doing their own sequencing, but there's plenty of other sequencing and epidemiological work that will tell them what, uh, what strains to focus on next. Yeah, it seems like this is a big timing issue for um, the rollout for the vaccines because I've heard everything from having a booster that could be a couple months, almost like a follow-up, you know, follow-on mm -hmm. to the current vaccination to more like the influenza where you get it on an annual basis. So I'm just wondering, is this an if, you know, which one, given the emerging situation, the fluidity of all this, you know, is there one approach that makes more sense than another here? Or do you think it should be coming sooner than later? Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, I think the, the time will tell just how robust uh, the immune response uh, of vaccination is to, um, uh, to variants and whether new variants emerge that further escape from vaccine conferred or natural infection conferred uh, immune protection. Um, I, I think we're gonna wait and see whether uh, SARS-CoV-2 is limited um, in its uh, in its range, so it can't escape that much more, uh, or whether it will continue to um, to evolve away from vaccine and natural in natural infection conferred protection. Um, so, so it could be that um, having had a vaccine or having been infected will provide substantial protection, even. 
uh, from variants and um, uh, that protection might be um, from infection at all, or it might be from developing severe disease or dying. Uh, and if that's the case, it may be people say, well, if all I'm gonna get is a cold uh, um, and I'm not gonna end up in the hospital and I'm not gonna die, uh, um, then maybe the immune protection that I have from this initial round is gonna be sufficient. But I think that, you know, the uh, more conservative approach is start to develop vaccines just in case um, that's not that just in case, you know, the, the, um, uh, it's, it's not that optimistic scenario and that new variants can cause just as much uh, uh, severe disease and death as um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 has to date um, in, in naive or fully susceptible people. Uh, and then having new vaccines, either as boosters or as, as annual shots will be necessary. I think you know, the strength and duration of immune protection and its relationship with these, with, with emerging variants uh, will, uh, will learn over time and that will shape what the strategy will be going forward. I mean, it seems like we can count on there being more mutations, right? Isn't that? Oh, oh, it's going to, it's going to, yeah, I mean, there will always mutate. Um, uh, that, that's, that's certainly the case. The question is, will it escape from, uh, continue to have the same kind of escape from immune protection, whether that was conferred by vaccination or, or natural immunity? You know, um, not every so so. Whereas flu uh, seems to evolve antigenically, so it uh, every year um, warranting uh, the seasonal flu vaccine. Um, other viruses uh, don't have that same kind of pattern, right? So we've used basically the same measles virus vaccine, um, you know, since it was developed uh, whatever fifty years ago. <laughs> Um, so it, measles is also an RNA virus that, that mutates. It's just its antigenic range has been limited. So, um, you know, it, not every virus follows the same flu-like pattern of regular escape from uh, immune pressure and regular antigenic evolution. So mutation for sure, but that doesn't necessarily uh, mean that we're going to see the same range or same pace of antigenic evolution. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I have one more question coming in from Greece. And if you don't know the answer to these, that's fine. I'll see if I can find somebody else for her. Uh, COVID-19 variants pushed Greece and many other countries in Europe into a third wave of the pandemic. The Greek government has imposed for many weeks now a third lockdown. Schools, shops, et cetera, are closed, but it doesn't seem to work. What is your advice and what other measures should be taken? Um, yeah, so, so I don't know the situation in Greece at all, uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so I, I can't speak directly to, to what's, what's going on or, or kind of what, what it means that things are not working. I mean, the, the um, reducing uh, uh, kind of what, what the tempo is and so on. I, I know, um, you know, it, it takes, it, it, there's, there's often a delay uh, between the introduction of lockdown measures uh, and uh, the reduction in cases, uh, in part, um, uh, this is something we've learned over the course of the pandemic, that it takes a couple of weeks um, to see the impact uh, of uh, changes in societal behaviors before there are changes in um, case numbers, hospitalizations, deaths, and so on. It, it, there is a delay. So I, I you know, that's, that's one potential explanation, but I, I, I really don't know the, the story in Greece to be able to speak to the specifics. Okay. Uh, she would also like to know, how worried should we be about the new COVID-19 variants? And you've touched on that a little bit, I think. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, with B117, we worry about its increased transmissibility. Um, so again, uh, with the lifting of restrictions, it, you know, it can, can even exacerbate uh, any rise in cases will worry about B117 driving more cases. Uh, and there was just a, a paper in Nature from um, Nick Davies and colleagues in, in the UK suggesting that B117 also causes more severe disease. 
So uh, I, I think that is for sure worrisome. Uh, and as we've just been discussing, if the variants also enable uh, uh, escape from um, infection conferred by either natural infection um, or from vaccination, right? so if they're starting to escape from that immune pressure, then um, uh, that's also concerning, right? Because then um, you will increase the uh, opportunities for spread and, and uh, all of the associated ramifications. Okay. Uh, and then she had one final question. How close are we to finding a treatment for COVID-19? Yes, yeah, so, so um, there are uh, um, some uh, treatments that can help um, that, that have, have been approved, uh, you know, things like dexamethasone for people with, with severe disease, it seems to help improve um, outcomes in hospitalized patients. Uh, remdesivir and antiviral, um, uh, fair, fairly modest, uh, but contributes. Um, I, I know that there are um, uh, individuals still, or companies, institutions, uh, academic groups who are continue to work on uh, finding um, uh, therapeutics, so 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 treatments um, that can uh, um, help reduce. Uh, the um, uh, severity of infection for people who are infected, um, but I, I don't know where uh, those trials stand. I, I can't speak to um, uh, um, where, where all the, that development is. Um, I know people have tried a variety of different things that don't seem to work, uh, you know, going back to the uh, hydroxychloroquine and, and azithromycin stories. Um, and I know people have been looking at other types of drugs, uh, but I, I don't can't speak to exactly where uh, all of those trials stand. Thank you. Um, I think that's it for questions. Uh, Dr. Grad, did you have any follow-up, any comments before we go? Nope. Thank you very much. This concludes the March 18th press conference.